Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Jumping in, chapters 18 through 20. Uh, had a week off, spring break. That was nice. Got a chance. Did you guys, did you guys do spring break? Good. No vacation. Everybody worked. You're retired. I'm in this glorious place where I get uh, I get paid vacation and my business continues on. Unlike some that if they take vacation, the work stops. Uh, it was uh, it was it was great. But it's good to be back with you guys, huh? No, we did Branson. So we just did a family trip to Branson and it was it was great. Loved it. Had a great time. Uh, yeah, it was really it was a lot of fun. Uh, tonight we're going to jump in to. Uh, First Samuel chapters, I'm going to cover three chapters tonight, and the three chapters have got a lot in it. Uh, if you guys listen to the podcast, I already told this crew, uh, the end of this does get a little bit racy, um, and I'll probably not go into full description on the podcast, sorry, uh, but I'm going to in the class tonight. Uh, but we'll kind of jump into it. First question, we'll just kind of take this uh, together as a group. Uh, if you were likely to get into an argument with somebody in your home growing up, who were you most likely to get into an argument with? Growing up, who was it? Just curious. If you are going to get in an argument, who was it? Authority figures. Authority figures in general, just the broad scope. Parents? Any one parent in particular? Your dad? Okay. Anybody else have one? Your brother. Older or younger? Older. Okay. Older sister. Older sister. Still like that or no? No. No? Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Older brother? Dad? All right. What about you guys? Mom, sister? Okay. Mine would have been definitely, and he may listen to this podcast, I don't know. Mine would have been my stepdad. Uh, we, we fought like cat and dogs and uh, argued incessantly. Uh, my brothers were like six and nine years older than me. So by the time I started getting my feet under me and wanting to, wanting to scrap a bit, they were already you know, moving out of the house. Uh, but tonight is going to be, if you could cast a movie on how this plays out tonight, uh, it is absolutely intense and would make a fantastic, fantastic drama. Uh, and, and I wish that we had the ability through, through a movie just to watch this thing play out. So let's jump into it. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18. And uh, again, we're going to get through a lot of stuff tonight that tends to be a bit controversial some of it tends to be a little bit racy, especially as we get into chapter 20. Um, but here we go. Uh, start chapter 18. If you guys are trying to open your Bibles there. Uh, it says, After David had finished uh, uh, talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. All right, let's deal with the obvious saying that we've had in our culture. Uh, well, first of all, let's talk about why Jonathan loved David. Um, growing up, I always pictured these guys being like, kid brothers, you know, they're both teenagers, and it's actually not the case. Jonathan was probably about 25 to 30 years older than David. He was a lot older. If you go back and you look at when Saul starts reigning, if you look at what that, the fact that Jonathan was, was there in battle and you couldn't go to battle as an Israelite until you're 20 years old, and you start doing a lot of the math and different things that it plays out in, in Saul's reign, Saul's life, he's probably about 27 years older than David. I mean, he's a lot older. And David really becomes the equivalent of something to be somewhere between the mix of like a father figure in David's life 
or, or almost like a little brother. Uh, they, they are that close. So the obvious thing that we've heard in our culture about David and Jonathan, let's just go there, this whole issue of like this homosexual relationship, this, this tension between that. Have you guys ever heard that about Jonathan and David? Kind of heard that, that stuff there? Let me deal with a couple issues here. Number one, if that's in the text, I'm not afraid to deal with that, dive into that, answer that issue. I, I think one thing we realize from Scripture is when, when God's got a sordid, difficult story, I don't think we've ever found a time where he tried to avoid going there. You know what I mean? I mean, you look at the prophet hacking up in, in, the, in the book of Judges. He hacks up his concubine at 12 pieces and ships are all over. You look at even showing that Samuel, how messed up he was as a dad and didn't lead his boys correctly. You're going to see David play out where he is a murderer and an adulterer. You know, God is not in the business of trying to hide his story. The words that are used here don't measure up with, with what we would use to describe um, someone a homosexual. Um, the, there's, there's a Hebrew word here. Um, the word aheb is translated love here. It nowhere in Scripture describes homosexual behavior activity. It doesn't. Not anywhere in Scripture. And my point is like, well, you know, in our culture we live with a heightened awareness of this. And uh, in, in we, we live in, in a culture that that is always looking, wondering, kind of kind of thinking about that kind of thing. If, if you understand, whenever in homosexual relations are in view, the Holy Spirit uses the word yada, completely different word. So this is not that. And in our culture, we kind of want to look for that. Well, maybe, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink. Maybe these two guys, it's really not. It's not what it is. Don't go there mentally because it's not. I'd say, number one, God's word would not have shied from that if, if that's what it was. He would have called it out. He would have have been afraid. He's shown throughout Scripture, when there's a mess, when the Israelites, any of them, when he shows David, he calls David out in sin. It's not like he's afraid to do that. Does that make sense? It's not like, well, you know, I'm I'm afraid to mention it. No, it's a completely different Hebrew word. There is a Hebrew word that's used in connection with that. That's not this word. This word is just, you know, it's a word, um, ahem, and it's just translated love. And, and I think it starts off as, a, as an absolute respect that Jonathan has for this young man. You know, David shows up. He's not even old enough to be in battle. He's probably 16 years old. He goes out and he kills Goliath. And if you remember who Jonathan is, Jonathan earlier in Saul's reign is with Saul at the pomegranate tree near Gibeah. You know, you get the Israelite to the two outposts. Remember that story? Jonathan leaves his dad. He goes and fights these guys. Kicks tail, takes name. And so I think he looks at it, Jonathan looks at it and goes, that man's got bravery in his heart. He looks at it, that's, it, it's, that's a guy I'd hang out with. That's a guy I'd do life with. And uh, he looks at it and he goes, there's cowards all over Israel. And I think Jonathan looks at his own dad for being a coward at times. But he looks at David and says, dude, you're one of me. You're like me. You're not afraid of anything. And uh, you're, you're willing to do what, what you think God can lead. And I think everybody knows the story of Jonathan by this time. They know, man, the guy that climbed the cliff and killed all the Philistines. They know that story. And so these guys have got a similar story. They both attacked the Philistines. And I think Jonathan looks at him and goes, that's my boy right there. And he kind of takes him in under his wing. So whether that's my boy in slang terms, as in, ah, man, you're, you're my boy. We're together in this. Or whether he looks at him like in an endearing way, like, man, in a father figure type of way, I don't know. I don't know how it plays out. But I do know this. Scripture's never tried to shrink or, or shy away from telling sin for what it was. That word love, it never implies anything about homosexuality. It just doesn't. So I want to go there just because so much, there's always this tension when it comes out to that story. Uh, and, and we kind of wonder about the David and Jonathan relationship. It's not that. And if it was, I, I totally believe the Bible would just say, 
let's get into that. So, read a little bit more. It says, from that day, uh, Saul kept David with him. It did not let him return to his father's house. Sounds weird. Sounds like, it it sounds a little hostile. I, I don't want to read too much into that text. But basically, he's with Saul now. And uh, I don't like he's holding him hostage, but it, it sounds pretty direct. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. All right, this is, you know, the prince in waiting. This is the prince, you know, this is heir to the throne. It's not that he's just given over his clothes. This is bigger than that. I need you to picture right now, you know, go back to England, you know, hundreds of years ago, and picture a crown prince taking off his royal robe, pulling off his royal ring, taking his royal sword, taking all of it and giving it to someone else. This is, this is a big, big, big deal right now. These, are not, these aren't light words on a page. Jonathan now realizes he wasn't there when Samuel anointed David. He wasn't there. And I don't know if John at this point knows that David's going to be king, but dude, he gets it. He gets it right now. Like, it's not me, man. What a humble attitude. John, it's not me. When he hands over his sword, his bow, his tunic, his robe, those are all of his royal attributes. And he basically just hands it to David. I cannot imagine from that point on, every time Saul saw David, David carrying that sword, every time Saul saw David wearing that tunic, what he had to... Th- you got my boy's robe on. You, it's Saul sitting there. He's the king. He's trying to set up a dynasty. And his stupid son just handed it all over to this guy. And I don't know if, if Saul's aware of what that covenant means. I don't even know if Jonathan completely understands or if the Holy Spirit's just leading Jonathan to do this. But the tension it's going to cause in this family is immense, especially when you get to chapter 20. It said, Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it successfully, and Saul gave him a high rank in his, in his army. And this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. It says, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet the king, with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, tambourines. Anyway, they sing and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. All right, if you're king, you know, you, you look at it that, <laughs> I look at, at um, Peyton Manning getting pulled from the Broncos game not too long ago. And Osweiler going in, and all of a sudden he starts getting all the attention, all the notoriety. And Peyton's sitting there going, Really? Really? Dude, I, I built this ship. What, you know, who do you think you are? You know, as a, my backup. And Saul's looking at him going, Really? Are you kidding me? Like, I put you in the position you're in. And at some point, you would think that a good leader would step back. If Saul's a good leader, he celebrates. Any win, now think about it, any win that David has is ultimately a win for who? Saul. It's like anybody that's a business owner. If you get a great salesman and you own the business and that salesman's knocking it out of the park and he's selling left and right and just doing an amazing job, why would you get jealous of that? Who's ultimately the beneficiary of those sales? The owner. Saul's king. And he's getting so jealous right now, David. A lot of times we read this Saul is his thousands and David is tens of thousands as if these ladies were singing an insult. I don't think it was meant to be an insult. The issue of tens of thousands, it doesn't literally mean tens of thousands. It just means a whole bunch. 
It just means David's killed a lot of people. Um, and I think that when I've read this, I, I think they're singing the praises of both of them. So I used to look at it as this tense moment where it's like, ooh, look what these girls are doing. I look at it different now where they're celebrating both of them. Man, Saul's saying thousands and David's killed even more. And it's kind of like we're so proud of our warriors. We're so proud of our guys. So proud of what our generals are doing. And, and yet in Saul, he hears all through that lens of jealousy. So this uh, Saul was very angry. The refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? He had no idea at this point. No idea. And from that time, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Man, any time you've got that happening, where you get jealousy fostering, whether it be in a workplace, in a home, on a team, you know, I, I've seen coaches that cause division between players. I'm like, why would you ever do that? Why would you take two players and pit them against one another? That, that does your team no good. Where you start praising, you know, one player starts struggling, he's not playing as well, so you want to promote somebody else to take his place, and all of a sudden you want to start saying, oh yeah, this guy's the greatest thing, he's so much better than what we had before. And it's like, that doesn't do the team any good, because all you're doing is causing division of the ranks. Because everybody can see Saul's got a jealous eye. All of his generals, all of his other leaders that hang out with him, they realize something's off here. Something's not right, and it plays out this way. Since the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying at his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. I find that contrast interesting, how he goes from sword to harp. And uh, he says, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it. I mean, he chunked it at David. Uh, it says he hurled it to David, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. David eluded him twice. I'm like, David, how does that play out? Here's David playing the guitar, you know, playing worship songs, trying to, this spirit has come forcefully on Paul, on Saul, sorry. David's like, all right, play some music for the guy, you know. And I just picture David's like got cuts on him, bruises on him from these battles he's just come from. Like, go play the guitar for the king now, who's out of his ever-loving mind. And all of a sudden, he's got a guitar in one hand leading in worship, Saul grabs his spear and just chucks that thing across the room. I mean, you want to talk about, like, workplace violence? This is it. I mean, this is it, man. He tries to kill him. Tries to, and just, like, the first time he misses, it says he eludes him twice. I'm like, does David stay there? Is he like, oh, my bad. Sorry you missed me. You're like, let me grab my guitar and start playing again. And I kind of wonder what it's like as David's sitting there playing. He watches Saul gets up, grabs a spear, looks over at him. David's just kind of playing the guitar like, how do you evade that moment with a spear flying at you? And we know David's a phenomenal athlete. We know that he is a warrior of warriors. We know he's a great guitar player. We know he's a great looking guy. I, I don't know how he does it, but somehow he dodges this spear of a, of a good warrior. Saul's a good warrior. Dodges a spear twice, tries to kill him. So he starts off, remember that, Saul tries to kill him himself. Says Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So Saul knows what's going on. So, so he sent David away from him, and he gave him command over a thousand men. David led troops in, the, in, the, in their campaigns, and everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he had led them in their campaigns. And so you look at it, and I think about it. Why would Saul send him off into battle like that? What's he trying to do? 
Yeah, he's just trying to get him killed. And you're, you're looking at him going, all right, I'm going to put you over a thousand men. I'm going to lead you out into battle. You're going to lead a campaign. Oh, you live through that one. We'll do another one. Oh, you live through that one. We'll do another one. Oh, you live through that one. We'll do another one. Um, I, I want to lead your thinking here for a second. Watch this. When Saul's not walking with God and he wants to eliminate David, what does he do? Just obviously, what does he do? We just read it. Uh, yeah, sends him into battle. Who else will do the same thing? David will do the same thing. When David's not walking with God and he's a long way from him, he'll do the same stinking thing to Uriah. Same thing. When he gets Bathsheba pregnant and he needs to eliminate, you know, this individual, he'll learn from the best. He'll do the exact same thing that Saul does. Breaks my heart. Moving on. Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merib. I'll give her to you in marriage. And I'm not going to read every verse, but man, there's some, we just got to read these stories. If you've not read it before, this, this next part of the story is just demented. So buckle up. Uh, this is one of those things like, really, God, did you have to include this part? Uh, really? Let's keep going. So he wants to give Merib, and he says, I'll give it to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight in the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I'll not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. So you can see what he's trying to do. He's just trying to kill him. He goes on, but David said to Saul, who am I? What's my father's, uh, you know, what's my father's clan in Israel? Who should I become the king's son-in-law? Now remember, what was supposed to be the gift for defeating Goliath? He was supposed to get the king's daughter, and he's supposed to be his family exempt from taxes. So he already should have had it, but he doesn't. Um, it says, uh, so when the time came for Mirab, Saul's daughter was to be given to David. She was given to marriage to Adriel of Molech. We'll get to that later on. That comes up. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Oh, this is just not a good dad. Check this out. He's pleased. He says, I'll give it to her, he thought, so she can be a snare to him, uh, so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Break that down. Use your minds for a second. Okay? I'll give her to him so she can be a snare to him. Okay? Think through it. So that the hands of the Philistines might be against him. Now use your minds. Play out the movie reel right now. Okay? I want you to see the wedding scene. Here's David. Who's David marrying? What's her name? McCall? Who is she? The daughter of the king. Play it out in your mind. Play it out in your mind. So, so she might be a snare to him. How is she going to be a snare to him? Possibly a distraction. Look at a snare to him. Look at the context. A snare to him so the hands of the Philistines might be against him. Yep. Yeah, king and the Philistines are at war. So the Israelites and Philistines are at war. So you know something. When you look at the battlefront, what usually, when we look at like the Revolutionary War, okay, when we're going to battle, not Civil War, it happened then as well, but in the Revolutionary War, who took the bullets first when we fired? Who do we usually aim for? Ah, you said at the officers. We always aim for the officers first. So play out the scenario. He says, all right, I'll give you my daughter. She's going to be a snare to you. 
Because when you go out to battle against the Philistines, who are they going to aim for first? King's son-in-law. King's son-in-law. And I'm sure Saul made it known. I'm sure he made it known among the Philistines that I'm sure that all the spies, all the trickle-out information, every Philistine out there knew that guy is related to the king. That guy is heir to the throne. That's the guy on the field we got to carry. So every time David goes to battle, he's got nothing but a target on his forehead, target on his chest, target on his back. He's the one. He's the one. If you want to strike at the heart, start killing the king's family. And man, Saul is using his own daughter in this game. Now she does love David. And I cannot wait to unpack some stuff with McCall later. Um, I really... She's messed up and she's broken and David hurts her. It, it's a messed up, tragic story of love that we're going to get into later on. But we, we won't do it tonight. And I'm about to lose all of my notes here because my battery's like 5%. It says, So Saul ordered his attendants, um, speak to David privately and say, Look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you. This is just bogus. Uh, now become a son-in-law. It's just not even true. Now, the fact that the attendants like him is probably true. They repeated these words to David. David said, well, do not think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law. I'm only a poor man and little known. <laughs> I don't know if that's false humility. I don't know if that's genuine. I'm going to trust David's heart here and, and take it that he's being very, very genuine. But part of it's like, whatever, dude. You just had a song sing about you by all the women of Israel. Like, yeah, you're a little known, my foot. Um, this next part, I just want to, I can't apologize because it's scripture, but it's about to get nasty. So hold on. Here we go. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul had said, okay, so basically what would happen before I read the next part, what would happen is in order for you to marry, um, you know, this girl, you would have to pay, uh, you know, some sort of, you know, price to the, to the, you know, the king's daughter. You have to pay a large price to marry the king's family to get her. You just have to. David didn't have that kind of money. His family really is pretty small in Israel. Uh, Jesse's clan. He, he's being honest, saying, I don't, I don't have the money to pay for this. Well, you already did, bud. You killed Goliath. But evidently, that deal's been broken by Saul. You know, it's off the, off the table now. And David evidently knows that. Like, okay, I guess that's not happening. And I wonder how long he waits. Like, I thought I got one of the king's daughters. I thought that I got my family exempted from taxes here. Like, hey, come on, man. Never plays out even after he kills Goliath. So he's sitting here going, man, what, what's up here? And so he's like, I don't, I don't have the money to marry her. Well, Saul's going to take care of that because he needs David dead. So when the tens told David, oh, wait, wait, here we go. Saul said, say to the king, the king wants no other price. I'm going to make it cheap for you, David. Won't cost you much at all. No other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins. Yeah. Now. I'm taking it that we're adults. We all know what foreskins are in here. With students, I'm always like, uh, how do I explain that? Yeah. Uh, he's got to cut off the tip of a penis off of 100 Philistines. <laughs> what a demented thing to ask. I mean, I imagine McCall's like, you've asked for what? I mean, she's like, that, that's the price you asked for? Like, what is this going on? Like, what's going on in her mind as a king's daughter? And again, this is why I love Scripture. God tells the full story. What a crazy... You don't teach this at like VBS. This lesson doesn't make it into the flannel graph. And David went and cut out the foreskins of a hundred... It just doesn't make the storyline, man. But I'm telling you, if we told this story, we'd all read the Bible a whole lot more. Because this is a great story. It really is. I mean, you can say like, oh, that's, that's just wrong. But it's kind of like, what? 
How many of you guys had never heard this story? Okay, tell you it, it's just crazy. Let's move on. It said Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Uh, no, duh. I'm not thinking that a hundred guys are going to line up and say, "Okay, I'm next." <laughs> the only way you're getting those foreskins, you got to kill these guys. It's not like they're going to say, "Oh yeah, I'll, I'll do that." You know, there is a great story. Joseph's brother's doing that. We're not getting to that right now. Um, but right now, you know, he's got he's got to get a hundred foreskins. So that means I got to go kill a hundred Philistines, and and that's the price I got to pay. And and so I don't know how long that takes him. You know, I don't know if it's a Samson moment where he does it. You know, in the the course of a night, or if this takes him a few weeks, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how it plays out. He don't really tell us. So the tenants told David this thing. He was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, so there's some time frame. I don't think it's ever given to us, is it? Yeah, I don't think we know what it is. David and his men went out. So he had people that helped him, and he killed two hundred Philistines, and he brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king, so he might become the king's son-in-law. What does that moment look like? I mean, yeah, gross. I mean, I'm just like, you did. What? Yeah, you got it. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I think Saul just takes his word for it. He walks in with a bag and like tosses it at his feet like, uh, there's 200 in there. And Saul's probably like, oh, I believe you. Okay. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think anybody, I don't think they count him, but evidently David knows he killed 200 guys. This is just a crazy story. Just a crazy, crazy story. I think it's also going to give you some insight. This is the beginning of the insight into reasons why David won't be allowed to build the temple. Listen, this guy may be a man after God's own heart. We may, we may think he plays the harp and he's this nice guy, but I, I need to rip that vision out of your minds. David is a bloodletting killing machine. Yes, he's one of the most handsome guys ever described in Scripture. Yes, he's a phenomenal athlete. Yes, he's a gifted musician. But he is a warrior. He is a warrior. And not, not just this, but from this pattern in his life of killing is part of the reason why. He's get, he will have too much blood on his hands that God will say, you can't build the temple. Your son Solomon's going to have to do it. He's a killing machine. He, he is one lethal individual. Makes Jason Bourne or, or 007 look like chump. Uh, I mean, he's just, he's that bad of a man. It says, when Saul realized the Lord was with David, uh, and that his daughter Michal loved David, she became, uh, he became, Saul became still more afraid of him, remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistines continued to go out into battle, and as often as they did, David met with much more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. Now you can imagine, not only is the target going to be on his back, because he's married to the king's daughter, but think about it, if you're the Philistine that all of a sudden walks up, finds 200 dead guys all missing their foreskins, and you know, well, David did that, you want to kill him even more. I mean, the Philistines, they, they hate David. That's going to be an important thing to remember in a couple more chapters. Just remember, like, you did what to them? You slaughtered how many of them? Keep that in mind. I know I keep saying that. We'll just get some cool stuff coming up in the next few chapters that I don't want to, I don't want to lose. Um, Saul told his son Jonathan and all of the attendants to kill David. All right, so first of all, who first tries to kill, who tries to kill David? Saul tries to. Okay? Secondly, he's going to ask Jonathan to do it. Jonathan and David are tight. I cannot imagine what that felt like for Jonathan. Do, do I stay loyal to my father, the king, and obey his orders and kill my best friend? 
tough. It's a tough moment for Jonathan. And not only that, but Jonathan's risen in power. Will he defy his father's orders when those orders are probably known among the other men? It's tough. It says, Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him. My father Saul is looking out for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go to the hiding. Stay there. Um, I'll go out and I'll stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him. Tell you what I find out. Um, He basically pleads with his dad, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Don't do it. Saul listened to Jonathan. uh, And he took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives to David, David will not be put to death. He's going to break that oath in a few more verses. I mean, Saul's just, he's just lying out his teeth. Uh, So David called to David, told him the whole conversation, and he brought him to Saul. Again, can you imagine that movie playing out? I, I don't know if there really is like a genuine reconnection here. I don't think there is. I think Saul's lying through his teeth. I think Jonathan wants to believe his dad. He wants to think his dad's telling the truth. So he calls out. David comes out of hiding. They kind of have this reuniting moment. And I don't know if they like shake hands or David picks up and starts playing guitar again. I don't know what happens. Um, but once more, war broke out. So fortunately, David, God provides a way for David to get out of town. Uh, and war breaks out. And David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand. While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to kill him, tried to pin him to the wall with a spear. David eluded him. Again, he tries to kill him. Um, and that night, David escapes. That word escape is going to play out several times coming up here. Uh, this is going to be pretty much one of the last times that David and Saul are, are, uh, are together. Even remotely working together, like in terms of like playing guitar for him, going to battle for him. There's a massive separation that happens between these two men. Oh, they'll see each other again, no doubt. They'll see each other again. But th- this really is the official separation of that verse. Um, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it uh, and to kill him in the morning. So first of all, Saul tries to kill him. Second of all, he tries to get Jonathan to do it. Third, Saul tries to kill him. Fourth, Saul sends other men. So he realized, my own boy won't kill him. I can't kill him. He's going to send some of his men to do it. And I wonder what it's like for those men, because everything we know from Scripture are the other soldiers respect David. I mean, he's killing Philistines left and right. I wonder what it's like for these men. I mean, they're, they're going to salute, click their heels, and obey the king's orders. But I cannot imagine some of them are like, we've got to do what? Is he out of his mind? I mean, he's the best soldier we've got. He's the best warrior we've got. It's the king's daughter, son. I mean, husband, sorry. What are we doing? Um, it says, but McCall, David's wife, warned him. Um, he says, if you don't run for your life tomorrow night, uh, tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So McCall let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Again, that word escaped. And McCall took an idol and laid it in the bed, covered it with a garment, and put some goat's hair at the head. That bothers me. May want to guess why that bothers me. It's an idol. What the heck's David doing with an idol in his house? David, what are you doing, man? And, and I know that maybe it was her idol. I don't know. But even if you are going to be, at, especially in an Old Testament context, a leader in your home, I, I have a lot. There's no place for God's people anywhere in Scripture for them to have an idol, a graven image. And I kind of wonder, man, David, what's going on with you? What are you thinking right now? 
And evidently, most of the idols that they would have would be like three or four inches tall, you know, two to three inches tall, even something you could put in your pocket. It was kind of like a good luck charm. Evidently, this idol's pretty big. It's big enough that she's able to do like, you know, like they do the fake thing in the prison, like when you put a, you know, a little fake, uh, what do they call those little, little uh, what are they called? Like a mannequin in there, and they cover it up, she put some hair on it. Evidently, this idol's big enough that it's disguised to look like David laying there in bed. She puts goat hair on it. It's probably dark because it come at night. So when Saul's men came to capture David, Michal said, he's ill. Uh, then Saul sent men back to see David. He told him, um, well, bring him back to me in his bed so that I may kill him. I'm like, this guy's desperate, desperate to slaughter him. When the men entered, uh, there was an idol in the bed, and the head was goat's hair. And, and basically, Jonathan always told his dad the truth. Uh, and, and David was able to get out of it by Jonathan saying, don't kill him. He's your servant. Don't do this. McCall resorts to lies to get him out of it. And, uh, and, and David's lucky because it gives him time and space to escape, which he will need. Saul said, why do you deceive me? McCall told him, he said to me, let me get away. You know, why should I kill you? That's not even true. Again, she lies, making it sound like David threatened to kill her. David never threatened to kill her. And she's just trying to save her own hide. Um, and, and you're going to find out why. I know I keep alluding to chapter 20. This guy scares his own family. Moving on. Um, when David had fled and made his escape, again the word escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah. You know, what a smart place for him to go. Uh, he could have gone back home to Benjamin. He could have tried to hide out there where he, you know, you know, shepherded sheep. There's all kinds of places he could have fled to. Like, there's lots of places he could have tried to escape. He was the one place he knows, I'm going to the other leader. I'm going to Samuel. He doesn't know what to do right now. He's like, you're the guy that appointed me. You're the guy that anointed me. You're the guy that said I'm going to be king. What the heck's going on right now? And so he runs to Samuel. Um, Samuel in his retirement does a cool thing. He basically gets a, a whole group of prophets as just teaching and training them. He opens like basically uh, the equivalent of a little Bible college. Kind of a cool retirement that Samuel does. And, uh, and David shows up. It says, uh, Word came to Saul that David's uh, with Samuel Ramah, so he sent men out to capture him. This, this next part is awesome. I love this. Cracks me up. So he sends these guys out to go grab David. Watch what happens. Warriors, soldiers, you know, they have been through battle, thick and thin. These guys are tough as nails. They show up to all these, where these prophets are, and it says, uh, sent men to capture him. And they saw a group that's prophesying with Samuel standing there as the leader. The Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. <laughs> like revival breaks out among the soldiers right now. Like, we're going to get him! And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit washes over them, and they start prophesying. And uh, it basically just start testifying to the good things of who God is. I'm like, this isn't going very well. So this, this just is very funny. Watch this play out. Um, Saul was told about it, and he sent more men. So here, all right, we're not going to be like those other guys. We're going to send in some really tough guys this guy this time. So Saul sends in more guys. And in verse, 20, verse 21 it says, and they prophesied too. So every time these guys show up, revival breaks out among these soldiers. And they're just like testifying to, about how great God is, how good the Lord is. I imagine Samuel's got, just got to be cracking up like, I know what you all hear. you got a sword strapped to your sides. You're here to kill David. And boom, he's like, next, revival breaking out. Who's next? So then it goes on. Saul sent, a th- uh, Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Every time these guys show up at this holy ground, at, at Samuel's small little you know, prophet school, his Bible college right there, 
Guys are just overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. And they can't kill, they can't destroy. God just shakes them at the core. Uh, I almost picture, you know, this movement like you see in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit just washing over them to the point where these grown men don't even know what to do. They they don't know what to do. And I, I just wonder, like, do they all go back? Does word get back? Like, does, is one group stay there? The next group shows up. And like as they're walking up, the other soldiers are still there and they're prophesying. And like, uh, then they start. Third group walks up. Like, I don't know how this all happens. If the groups are going back and forth, if they're all just kind of stuck there worshiping God. But it, it gets even funnier. It says, uh, finally, he himself left Ramah and he went to the great cistern and he asked, uh, where are Samuel and David? He says, over Naoth, Ramah, his, where his school is, he said. So Saul went there. But the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he got there. So Saul's anger just dispels, and God just washes over him, and revival breaks out in his own heart. He stripped off his robes. All right, now, we don't, what time is it? Yeah, we don't have time to unpack all this, because there's some really cool things I want to get to. Um, Oh, man, my computer reset. Okay, earlier on, Paul, Saul has this moment where he prophesies with Samuel. Back in like, I think it's like chapter 10 or something like that. I can't remember where it was. And, uh, and it says, what? Has Saul even gone to be with other prophets? And Samuel anoints him. All this beautiful stuff happens. It's pretty much the same place. Now Saul has come back, not as this, this young man being anointed. Now he's come back as this vengeful, vindictive king who wants to kill so the first time he meets Samuel at this sacred space, he prophesies there the first time. I think it's chapter 10, but I'm not positive. could be chapter 13. I honestly don't remember. But this beautiful moment happens where they say, what, is, has Saul become one of the prophets? Has Saul gone among, to be among the prophets? He says that clear back earlier, the first time this happens. So this isn't the first time that God's Spirit has come on Saul like this in a powerful way. But the first time, man, great things break out. He's anointed. If you remember, he ends up going up on the roof all night. He sits up there with Samuel. They have this great conversation. He sends Saul on his way. Now this time he comes back to that place. Not so good. He literally strips off his robe. Now keep in mind, this is the equivalent. Think about, in our context, think of an English king removing his robe. Don't think of this as a bathrobe. Okay? You've got to think of this as a, as a kingly garment. Something that, that signified who he was. And when he strips off his robe, he's stripping off his identity. Make sense? It's a big deal. It's an embarrassing thing. I mean, here he is. It goes on. And it says, uh, He stripped off his robe, and he also prophesied in Samuel's presence until he lay that way all day and night. Saul falls on his face, basically naked, all day and night, just crying out to God. If he had done that of his own volition, if he had done that with his own heart and not been forced to, and basically, this is God's way of saying, listen, you want to come in here. You want to come into this prophet's holy place. And Saul will come back to a place of prophets in a slaughter later on. But he comes this time, breaks my heart, man, to watch a leader fall like this. He says, is Saul also among the prophets? That's the same phrase they used when we first met him. Same phrase. And the writer's trying to say, don't forget this. He was here before. The writer's trying to say, don't forget this chapter. Anybody find it yet, by any chance? If you find it, let me know, because if you're listening to the podcast, maybe you guys can find it. I can't recall. But that, that phrase is used before. You know what? The easiest way to find it is right here. Uh, that's verse 24. We'll cross-reference. Yeah, 1 Samuel 10, 11. Check that out. Let's flip back to chapter 10. 
Might as well look at this real quick. we got time. Chapter 10, verse 11, you see the same thing. Um, Saul made king. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, uh, God changed Saul's heart. Uh, and all these signs were fulfilled from that day. When they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came on him in power, and he joined in their prophesying. When those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that's happened to the young son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So, there's a tension here. The first time, it's a beautiful, holy thing. It's a thing where Saul is being appointed as king. The second time, that robe is literally being stripped off his back. Okay? Alright. Now, we get into some hot topics right now. It's going to get a little dicey here. And uh, buckle up. Chapter 20. Then David fled to Noah. He says, from Ram he left. Um, and he asked, uh, he went to Jonathan. He asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? Now, if you've ever asked that question where you've tried to do something good and all you've got is vengeance um, maybe the time where you've been falsely accused and no matter what you tried to do to make it right you could you and and I, I don't mean a self-righteous attitude I mean truly there is not anything in your heart that is trying to cause malice nothing in your heart that's trying to cause problems and when somebody it has it out for you and you cannot get away from that that's a terrible place to be. When you know someone doesn't like you or you know someone hates you, and no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, no matter how nice you are to them, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They've got it out for you. And, man, I'll tell you what, a lot of times when God's power is on a person, very often those who don't understand it or don't like it can rage against that. And David is bearing a brunt of this. Big time. It says, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Now, Jonathan finally gets it. First time we see Jonathan going, Hey, my dad didn't want to kill you. My, it's okay. We'll work it out. Jonathan's trying to be this harmonizer, this peacemaker. Come on back with me, David. You and my dad, we'll work this thing out. Go kill some more Philistines. He likes when you do that. He promotes you. Well, now all of a sudden he's like, No, you're right, dude. My dad wants to kill you. He says, Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I'll go out and stand with my father in the field. Actually, I'm the wrong part here. Sorry. Um, verse 2. Um, Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. All right. Other chapter, he tries to set it right. He's going to start right now saying, no, it's not going to happen. And then he's going to flip it. So back off what I said just a second ago. That, I got ahead of myself. That's coming here in a second. Jonathan's still in his denial phase. I, I was ahead of myself. He's still in his denial phase. It says, but David took an oath. There's a ton of oaths about to be taken here. This one in verse 3 is a big, 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 big deal. David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I found favor in your eyes. Uh, and has said to himself, um, Jonathan must not know uh, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only a step between me and, day, me and death. Jonathan said to David, uh, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow's a new moon festival. Now, they didn't have like calendars like we've got. We understand the concept of a new moon. We know when they're coming. Anytime a new moon came, uh, they could basically project them pretty close. Um, but anytime that happened, it was a great time for a festival. And they would get together, be a big dinner. And so if you're king having a festival, these were religious festivals, if you're king having a festival, you expect 
your key leaders to be with you. It's a party. Come on in. We're having a festival. Everybody's going to eat. Um, he says, uh, he says, look, tomorrow's a new moon festival, and I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem. Okay, David's lying right now. Now keep in mind, we got to get out of our minds, David's not Jesus. He's going to sin a whole lot. And we struggle with like saying bad things about David. David's a fallen man. David's a man who screws up left and right. When we talk about he's a man after God's own heart, I have a different, a different perspective on what that means. I don't look at it, like sometimes they'll say, oh, your son takes after you. He looks a lot like you. You know, usually, oh, he takes after you. And so sometimes we look at that word like a man after God's own heart, like, oh, David's just a good reflection of God. I see it differently. I, I interpret that view a little, bit, a little bit differently. If you ever watched a football game, okay, and a ball gets fumbled, and that ball is bouncing all over the ground, you ever watched a player go after that ball, pursue it, even if they, especially if they're the ones that fumbled it, especially if they're the ones that dropped it, I think, and God is, David is after the heart of God like a player's after football. He knows that he's making a mistake. He knows he's doing the wrong thing. Sometimes within, if you've ever caught yourself in sin, we all have. When you catch yourself in sin, when I catch myself in sin, we can usually have one of two attitudes. Either a heart of our heart that's just like, screw it, I don't care. Whatever, man. Screw it. This is me. Deal with it. It's who I am. I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of like trying to live up to everybody else's expectations. I just don't even care anymore. And you, I've been that. I've felt that way at times. Maybe you felt that way at certain times. You just fed up, or maybe you've you've been married to somebody, or you've dated somebody. You've got a child that's been that way. At some level, we all know people who have been that way. That's the heart that gets calloused and hard. That's where you find Saul. David, you're going to find is able to be broken. He's able to be drawn into repentance. Um, one thing that I did not get to uh, that I don't want to forget, and we're going to backtrack here because I just now remembered. Uh, Lord, help me remember. Oh, man. And my computer shut off and I can't get it to work now. Uh, sorry, I stopped the podcast. I'm back now. I don't know how long ago I stopped that. Um, oops. Uh, anyway, there's this moment when, he said, when David says in verse 14, show me your loving kindness, or when Jonathan says that, sorry, that that plays out. And it's somewhere in 2 Samuel, I can't recall, but David goes into this conflict with his own son Absalom. And Absalom gets his own, gets, I, know I'm going, I know I'm flying through stories that some of you may or may not know. Long story short, David gets into this massive conflict with his own son. They fight it out. To the point where Absalom gets so strong that David has to run for his life. I mean, flee Jerusalem. Because Absalom's own son has got enough people on his side that David's a dead man. And so he, he flees his son. And on his way out, the last thing he, done, he does is he grabs hold of this, 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 uh, this boy that's handicapped. Because he knows that Absalom will wipe out anybody left. And Absalom does. He kills all kinds of people. He sleeps with David's wives. Absalom, Absalom gets, he's a jacked up son. A lot of it's David's fault. But David knows if I leave anybody here, he's going to kill him. He's going to kill him. And Absalom will. And one of the last things that David does is he grabs this boy that's crippled in both feet, named Mephibosheth. He grabs him, picks him up, 
and carries him off. David's trying to flee for his life to get out of Jerusalem because he's about to be killed. And one of the last things he does as he leaves Jerusalem is he picks up this boy named Mephibosheth that's crippled that can't run. He can't flee. It's, the, the pressure's that intense. Absalom's coming that fast. Like, clock is ticking. You know, we're here. We're about to die. And all of a sudden, everybody's looking at David going, David, what are you doing? we got to go, David. we got to go now. David's like, we can't go. I've got to get Mephibosheth. He runs in, grabs this boy, picks him up, and they flee with him. Mephibosheth was the great-grandson. Or the, the grandson of a great-grandson. I can't remember. Just grandson, I think, of Jonathan. He upholds his word. Thank you! 2 Samuel 9. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And hopefully I told the story accurately. It's been a long time since I read it. But he grabs Mephibosheth and saves his life to keep his word right here. So yeah, he lies about, i got to go back to the New Moon Festival with my parents. He was never going to do that. He's hiding in the field. Yes, he does things wrong here and there, and he's going to do a lot more. But he's still a man after God's heart. He wants to do the right thing, and he keeps his word. All right, let's pick this back up. Here we go. We're a few verses away from it getting intense. Says, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. Uh, and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him. That word oath is all over. It's like ten times to this text. These guys are just making promise after promise to one another. Says, Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is a new moon festival. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. Uh, that verse on a tangent is a meaningful verse to me personally. Um, Picture right now, uh, if you want to, almost that Knights of the Round Table type view. Um, I, I, just for your imagination's sake, it probably didn't look quite like that. If picture Saul sitting at the head of that table, he's looking all the way around, and one seat is empty. Now, th- this is not a festival. If you're a ruler, if you're one of, of, of Saul's main men, you don't, you don't miss this festival. You, your, your rear is going to be in that seat. You know, it's kind of like if you are leading a staff meeting, you just don't miss this. This is the equivalent of that. Don't, don't you miss the New Moon Festival. You're going to be here. Saul knows David's going to be there. And all of a sudden, party time, everybody's coming in. It's a two-day festival, and everyone's taking their seats. Saul's standing at the head of the table. He's got a couple spears behind him in case he misses. Got a sword at his side. And, uh, and I probably shouldn't allude to it, but it's almost like that scene from The Godfather, you know, when he walks around with a baseball bat. It's that equivalent right now. David's going to die tonight. He's going to die in that room, and he's surrounded by men, uh, most of whom can kill him. And, and it's going down right here, right now. And all of a sudden, Saul looks over, and there's an empty chair. And it's the chair that David already sits in. And I'm, in my mind, I can picture Saul taking practice shots at that, at that chair throughout the day with that spear, ready to just pummel this guy like, hey, let's say grace. And as David lowers his head, spear's flying at him. But all of a sudden, that seat is empty. Um, I'm going to tell you a tangent because I, I can't ever reference this text without telling a story uh, that goes outside of, of this. Um, sometimes when in, uh, in ministry, there would be phone calls that, that I would get that were just really, really difficult. Uh, one of those um, was late one night uh, in October. And I was laying in bed and... Uh, Anytime I was in youth ministry and a phone rang after at about midnight to 2 a.m., I usually, you know, even at any time, not just youth ministry, your phone rings that time of night, you know, most of us, our heart sinks. It's like, here we go. Um, and I think we learned that early on. Uh, I remember the first time that I learned it uh, was my mom walking in my eighth grade year, and the phone had rang, 
and I remember hearing it ring, but I remember falling back asleep because I didn't know what time it was. I was a kid in bed. And she walked in. I remember sitting straight up in bed and saying, Poppy's dead, isn't he? And she's like, how did you know? And I was just close to him. I loved him, and I just somehow just knew. Um, but in youth ministry, I remember a night, uh, I got a call from my mom, and uh, she asked me to come to the hospital um, because her, her son had been, uh, been shot in the head. And he was a student in my ministry that I loved dearly. Great kid. It was Aaron McCants. And I don't want to get into my personal opinions about the way the Tulsa Police Department handled that investigation. Let's just say that I'm not a fan of how they handled that investigation. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think they absolutely botched it. And I'm a big fan of police, but I'm not a fan of how they handled that moment. Uh, Aaron was a young black kid uh, hanging out with another white kid. Uh, five minutes before the gun went off, actually less than five minutes, Three minutes before the gun went off, Aaron had said to somebody else on a phone call at the kid's house, hey man, quit pointing that gun at me, it's going to go off. And then somehow, within three minutes, there's a 911 call placed and Aaron was on the ground, uh, shot in the head. And, uh, and the story was, they, they decided in that less than three minutes to play a game of Russian roulette. And I'm like, no, Aaron had, he was a high school senior, soccer scholarships to play D1. Uh, he'd been, you know, yes, he had been drinking that night. But Aaron was a kid that loved life. He's not going to play Russian roulette with a pistol. It's just not who he is. But that's the way it went down, playing Russian roulette. I'm like, no, no, that's not the way it went down. And this kid just literally got away with something he shouldn't have got away with. But that's, those are my opinions. Those don't necessarily reflect anyone else's opinions. Uh, but I remember using this text to preach Aaron's funeral. And uh, I talked about, and, and I think we all know that feeling, when you sit down for a meal and you look across and a seat is empty. I can imagine right now that in, you know, with what our church is going through with the death of, of Peggy Michael, uh, that her family is going to feel that right now. That's a seat that's empty and they're missed. And I can imagine it right now in Carl Junction that there's a family, the Jensen family, they're feeling that right now. I can imagine those at Christian College with this young boy that, that, that died yesterday. I can imagine that when those kids go back to class, there's going to be a seat that's empty and, and he's going to be missed. Uh, Jonathan felt that type of grief because he knows what's about to go down. And this seat empty is not the equivalent of, of a death for Jonathan, but it's close. It's a deep, deep wound. And that seat empty means a severed relationship that can never be put back together. It'll never get really put back together. goes on. <clears throat> he says, the day after tomorrow... Uh, toward e- okay, sit down tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place and wait by the stone of Ezel. This is that story. If you've not read it, he takes a young boy out there. He says he's going to shoot three arrows. All right? He says, uh, I'm going to sit the boy out. He says, go find the arrows. He says, if I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Bring them here and come, because as sure the Lord lives, you're safe and there is no danger. So basically, shoot these three arrows out there. And if they land on one side of this stone... David's safe. If they land on the other side, David's in trouble. Um, he says, so I'm going to keep going back. We're going to skip through some verses because there's some stuff I want to hit here in a second. So David hid in the field. said the festival came. Uh, Saul, uh, he says, uh, he sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan. Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, well, something must have happened to David uh, to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, uh, David's place was empty again. And Saul said to Jonathan, why hasn't this son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? All right, this son of Jesse, 
Um, that is a condescending phrase, but not nearly as condescending as it's about to get. It's about to get real in the Saul household. So he says, where's the son of Jesse? And uh, in, he doesn't even reference him by name anymore. Uh, he asks his, his son, you know, where is this, this son of a gun? And, you know, and all of a sudden Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me from permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brothers ordered me to be there. If I found savor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brother. And that's why he's not come to the king's table. All right, now, going to pause the podcast here in a second when I, when I break down the real thing that Saul says here because I just don't want to record him. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said, you're the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Um, hold on. So basically, he calls him you know, the equivalent of, of an SOB with an exclamation point. What Saul does here, you can cut the tension with a knife. When asked, who did you argue with most at your home? This right here for Saul, or for Jonathan, is a defining moment. I mean, he's sitting there, room full of leaders. Jonathan himself is a grown man at this point, and a warrior in his own right. His, old, his, his dad, who's getting a little bit older now, basically just screams at him, USOB. And I mean screams it. Calls his mother a whore. And you can imagine, if you're Jonathan right now, let that, let that play out at your Thanksgiving dinner. Let that play out at one of your festivals that you've got at your house. You know, let your dad call your mom that and imagine like, oh, oh you just did what? You can imagine, like I, I can't imagine if my dad said that about my mom, I'm like, oh, hold on just a second. We're going to have words right now. This, this moment of tension, let it be as real as it is. Don't go through, so many times with Scripture, we want to get alcohol swabs out, we want to sterilize it, you know, we want to make it look all pretty and nice. This isn't pretty and nice. This is a family fight, full on, in front of everybody else, everybody's dirty laundry out, and Saul's just stood up and screamed at the top of his lungs and called his own son, you SOB. But he says it. Says it all, the whole thing. One, I love Scripture. What a beautiful thing that God just tells us the full story. And it doesn't say something, and Saul was disappointed with his boy. No, it doesn't, man. I love Scripture. I mean, as ugly as that is, it's beautiful. Do you see it? It's just so beautiful that you can go, whoa! This is why if you ever do, you know, do the Bible, and in fact, if you want to, you can do this on your own, and, and I don't want to go into all of it. Uh, anybody here got an, a, a Bible app on their phone that looks up other translations like Glow Bible or version? Anybody got that on their phone? Okay. You, if you want to do this later on, or you can Google it. Read this text in, in some other translations uh, because it's interesting. Read it in, in, uh, in today's English version, how they translate this. Because I want you to understand the harshness. Uh, another one you can read it in is the, uh, the NET. Okay? NET. Uh, read it in those translations. I'm going to be polite. Uh, because basically, you know, he calls them, you know, you stupid SOB. And I'm not going to say it. But what I love about those translations is that the NIV is very polite and proper. You know, where it says, it just sounds... Perverse and rebellious woman sounds so much more polite than what Saul actually says. And uh, it, it, it is pretty vicious when he says it to his boy. And it gets worse. He says, Don't I know that you sided with that son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? All right, how is this to Jonathan's own shame? How is it to Jonathan's own shame? 
Be Saul for a second. Climb into Saul's skin for just a moment. How is this to, to, to Jonathan's own shame? Yeah, you went against his dad. How else is it to Jonathan's own shame? You're not going to be king. I think he's looking at me going, you stupid son. You idiot. You fool. You blankety blank and blank. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, it probably doesn't even begin to address the onslaught of cuss words that went at Jonathan right now. We get a little taste of it, but I'm, I doubt that's the only thing that Saul said. It's not like we have every recorded word that's listed here. It is like, you stupid son of mine. You've, you've basically just given the kingdom over to the son of Jesse. You're an embarrassment to me and you're an embarrassment to the mom who bore you. Wow, Dad, thanks for that. That's an awesome moment. Awesome moment with father and son. Keeps going. He says, uh, he says, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. He gets the heart of the matter. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Saul right now, even at some level, he hates David, but I think he's also trying to protect his son. Like, you, you're stupid, Jonathan. You can't let this guy live. You can't let him live, Jonathan. You're killing me, man. You're such a stupid son. You've you got to know better. We've got to kill this guy. You're going to lose your kingdom. I've, I'm sure Saul, look, everything I built for you. Look at the city. Look at all I've got for you. What are you doing, man? As they're sitting there living in Gibeah. Goes on, he says, uh, um, and says, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. Here it is. But Saul hurled a spear at him to kill him. And then, <laughs> understatement, then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. I'm like, you just cussed out your son and chunked a spear at him for crying out loud. He just tried to kill his own boy. So you're worried about David taking the throne. You just tried to take the throne from your own son. What are you doing? He just literally tried to kill his own boy. Now, again, don't picture Jonathan as this teenager, 20-something guy. I mean, Jonathan's a grown man. John, I don't know how old he is. We could probably do the math and figure it out. But he's no young pup at this point. You know, I don't know, you know where Jonathan is with his family, with his kids, all of that. We do know that he has children. You know, but at this point, I mean, Saul's trying to kill his own boy. It's pretty vicious. Says Jonathan got up the table in fierce anger. And I wonder at that moment if Jonathan's grabbing the sword. I wonder what the other men in the room are doing. You know, you get all these warriors. Abner at reference there. Ah, Abner's nuts, man. Abner's like a brick short of a load. Like he's off. Abner's crazy warrior. He will do insane things you'll read later on. Abner's like, oh, yeah, he's bad, 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 bad deal. And Abner's sitting there. He's going to side with Saul right now. You can imagine this room like, okay, what's about to go down now? we got a, we got a father and son. You know, he chunks a spear at, at Jonathan. Abner's, Abner's sitting next to him. I'm sure he's dodging a bit too. You know, I don't think it's because Saul's a bad shot. I think these guys are, or, you know, they see it coming and they're whoo, dodging this thing. You imagine the tension in that room with all these other soldiers. Like, whew, it's about to go down right now. Like, we don't know. Do we side with son and David? Do we side with king? So David jumps up, and Jonathan jumps up in fierce anger. And I kind of wonder, is he reaching for his sword? Or is he keeping himself somewhat collected? Says, Jonathan got up the table in fierce anger. On the second day of the month, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Interesting. Doesn't ever mention how he treated himself. Find that fascinating. Says, the morning Jonathan went out in the field... 
uh, for his meeting with David, he had a small boy with him. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And the boy ran. You know, like, dude, get a target or something. This poor kid. Um, the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen. And Jonathan called after him. He says, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry up, go quickly, don't stop. I'm sure this kid's like, no, it, it, it's right here. Like, no, it's not. It's not there. kid's like, but I see it. No, you don't. That, no, go. I'm going to shoot another one. kid's like dodging and trying to avoid getting hit. He says, the boy knew nothing uh, of this matter. Knew nothing of all this. Only Jonathan David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go, carry them back to the town. Jonathan's being a good leader right now. He's being a good man. He's sparing this kid from, from seeing David, from being a witness to what's about to go down. And uh, it goes on, it says, after the boy had gone, and this is the last really genuine moment between David and Jonathan. It says, after the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times. Utter sign of respect for, for Jonathan. He says, with his face to the ground, they kissed each other and wept together, uh, but David wept the most. And... Uh, you got to understand from David's perspective, when he leaves right now, he's got nothing. He's got nothing. And David is about to make a whole lot of mistakes. I mean, he's given up. He's, he's leaving his wife. He's leaving his job. He's leaving where he lives. He's going to have to, he can't go home. Like, why didn't he just go home? Because Saul will show up and kill his whole family. I'm sure Saul sends people up to Bethlehem to Jesse looking for David. You know, he's in a, he's in a tight spot right now. He's in a bad, bad place. And even more so, the only ally he's got in the entire world, it seems, other than McCall, is, is Jonathan. Only asset, only thing he's got on his side is Jonathan. So, but Jonathan said to David, says, go in peace, for we have a sworn friendship. They've had nine oaths they made with each other. He says, with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. Um, I think Jonathan really is one of the, and we're going to wrap this up now, I think Jonathan's one of the main storylines in Air Force. David's storyline is about to kick up a whole lot. But here's Jonathan, somebody who could have easily thirsted for power. He could have easily uh, thirsted for prestige. Could have easily killed David himself. But how beautiful thing is it when you recognize God has appointed another leader? What humility Jonathan has. What humility. I mean, he gives up the throne. That rightfully in everyone else's eyes, and rightly by other people's eyes, not by God's eyes, belong to him. Belong to him. And he laid down his own crown. And he surrendered it to David. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing. All right. Great stuff coming. Um, We're going to dive deeper and deeper and deeper into David's life. We've only got a couple of weeks left to cover the rest of the book. So the 20th is our last time together. So I've got to condense and cover like four and five chapters coming up. It's going to get really, really hard. Uh, We did three tonight, which is tough for me. Um, But hopefully you can look at it and just pick some stuff out of it that truly is beautiful uh, in that story. And, And I think for me... The most beautiful thing is is the humility of Jonathan. When you're willing to let somebody else succeed, even when it looks like it would be to your own demise. What a beautiful thing. What, What lessons we could learn to champion someone else 
when we don't get the glory, to champion somebody else when they'll experience success far beyond anything we may ever achieve, to champion somebody else when God's blessing seems to be on them. Because usually, we're, we can, I can tend to be like Saul. I can get jealous of the possessions they've got, the power they've got, the position they've got. You know, that's what Saul is. He's jealous of David. Look at David, what he can do. Look what David, look at David, look at David. Jonathan's not. He says, you know what? There's something special on David. Jonathan sees it. Something godly on David. And I'm, I'm going to choose to align with that, e- even if it looks like I'm hurting myself. And, and I love that humility. When a good leader can step back and say, hey man, I hoped I would be the one that God would work through, but evidently it's going to be you. And I'm, I'm going to join you in your work. Uh, because a lot of times in our culture, it's about making a name for yourself. You know what I mean? We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We make a name for ourselves. We make things happen. And in this moment, Jonathan spends his whole life protecting David's name. Even to the point of putting his own life in jeopardy. What a beautiful thing. Great lesson for us. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.